Hi there and a very warm welcome as every Friday to Bergos Now. My name is Aurelia Rauch and I'm very happy to welcome one of my favorite guests here to the podcast. Nico Luxinger from the Asia Society is here with me. Nico, hi, how are you? Hi Aurelia, I'm good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Summertime, I'm loving this. Um, and I'm loving my special guests during the summertime. I think today we're turning towards a particularly interesting topic. We're going to talk about China and maybe we can start by sort of setting the stage. Why do we talk about China today? Why do we look towards China? What's happening? What's relevant? What's the latest? Why do we care? And what do we talk about? Sure. So I, of course, never need a special reason to talk about China or anything Asia. <laughs> but today I wanted to come in to talk more specifically about the relationship between Europe and China. Perfect. Um, again, that's something that I think is, is interesting almost all the time. Uh, the reason I think it makes sense to discuss it now is because it's very much in flux. To me, the relationship between Europe and China is one of those topics that is both incredibly relevant in the sense that where Europe lands on this or the way the relationship develops will have quite a big impact on, on us here in Europe, including in Switzerland. We always, we Swiss tend to think we're not part of it, but in, in this respect, I think we are yeah. at least to a certain extent part of it. Also have an impact on, on China and, and probably it will have an impact on the world. So it's a highly relevant topic, um, but it's also highly complex in the sense that there's not an easy answer. Um, it's a very multifaceted thing. And the third reason is that it's 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 in flux right now, right? Mm -hmm. So the, there's a debate in Europe um, on many levels, both uh, on the EU level as well as in the countries on what the relationship towards China should be. Yeah. Some of this has been triggered uh, by, the, by the war in Ukraine um, and sort of the, the sense in Europe of needing to position itself better, maybe globally. Uh, but uh, part of it also just been like in the making for a long time. So there's... A lot of things. There was a, a speech uh, by EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, that sort of came up with this term that everyone's using now called de-risking. Um, there was a trip by uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, including von der Leyen, uh, to Beijing. Uh, much more recently, Germany actually published its its own and, and first China strategy. Yeah. So there are pieces of the debate, um, and I think that makes it just very interesting to discuss this right now. And and the key question. Um, that the Asian Society Switzerland we recently asked is not just how does this relationship look and sort of, you know, how did it develop over the last 10 years or so, but also I think one of the key questions people are asking and are discussing right now is should Europe side more clearly with the United States on China? Yeah. Um, or should it try to pursue uh, what some people call strategic autonomy? Mm -hmm. so one of the favorite terms of, of, of the French president. Um, and I think that's a very interesting debate. Uh, there's not a clear-cut answer. There are really good arguments for both sides, and that's just what makes it very interesting to me. And Nico, if you if you don't mind uh, me throwing this in here, if you can summarize a little bit over the last few years what the stance of, let's just say, Europe towards China has been. Has it been sort of a, a bit undefined, a little bit more on the go? Because you're saying that, for example, Germany just released a China strategy. So does it mean there wasn't one before? Yes, yes. It, I mean, there was not a explicit document that was available to the public that you know set China strategy on the cover. Yeah. Of course, you know the German government would argue with some justification that it did have some sort of strategy that it pursued in its interactions and in its relationship with China. But it is a somewhat newish thing um, that countries will actually go and have strategies that are specifically sort of 
targeted towards their China policies. Yeah. Um, Switzerland has a China strategy, which came out in 2021, and now Germany has one, two other, other countries as well. So um, the Europe-China relationship is, is, is complicated, but to tr maybe trying to summarize the, the, where it's at currently, the one thing, which to a certain extent is also true for, for the US-China relationship, is that you have these almost two realities. In one sense, you have an economic integration which is continuing the much more or less the same way than it than it used to in, in, in the past year. So we're not seeing, you know, really anything uh, that points us towards an, a, a decoupling uh, or you know, just kind of like a, a, a disentangling mm. of the economic relationship. It's still there. Um, uh, the trade integration is there both in both in goods and in services. Um, there's some shifts in on the FDI side, um, in terms of you know like which side invests money, how into the two countries, um, uh, that is changing. Uh, but I think sort of you know, if you had to put it in one sentence, is that it's a it's a deep and it's a deep economic relationship that tends to become deeper over time um, with very little sort of signs of sort of uh, meaningful disentanglement, and that contrasts heavily with the political side where. Um, and it actually go back and, and read this a few weeks ago um, in 2013-14. There was a, a strategic agenda for cooperation that the EU and China put out together. Okay. And it's it's worth like going back and reading this document. It like if you read it today, like it sounds positively absurd. Okay. In the sense <laughs> that it's very optimistic and it's incredibly comprehensive. It covers everything from military training to urbanizations to student exchanges. So this was a moment when at least you know, in, in the sense where this document uh, came from, the two sides felt that there was a very, very broad range of collaboration possibilities and strategic alignment. And say of, say yeah. again from when? This, this is 2013 and okay, 14. Okay, got it. Um, and so obviously that, you know, sort of, this was a strategic agenda that never you know, came to fruition. Um, uh, many of the things that it says uh, never actually happened. A bunch of things changed. Um, I think sort of the earliest sort of indicators that the relationship would become less harmonious was really the sort of Chinese industrial policy and, and the Europeans freaking out about a series of quite high profile acquisitions of uh, yeah. European companies uh, by Chinese uh, companies. And that sort of led the European side certainly to reassess uh, the situation. And um, so there's a little bit of a fragmentation in the sense that the European side still tries to find opportunity for collaboration in some areas, but then sort of not in others. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the key strategic uh, framework here is what the EU comes out with in 2019 um, in a document called Strategic Outlook, where it labels China at the same time as a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. Wow. And that's really been like the European view. Um, interestingly, that formulation is also part of the German strategy, which is just really so the Germans kind of adopted that from, from the EU level. Not every European country necessarily agrees with this full heartedly. Not every European country has made this you know, sort of core core of their uh, their approach to China, but the yeah. Germans the Germans have, and the Germans are of course uh, very important. So um, this is 2019, right? So before the pandemic, you have this, and I think the idea is that again, sort of, it's this idea of trying to compartmentalize the relationship, where you say, well, yeah. you know, so we we like fundamentally disagree on on, on certain things, whether it's like human rights or sort of um, 
governance issues, but you know, we could still probably collaborate on things like climate change. Um, and so that's something. And I think at the time, those three parts, partner, competitor, systemic rival were sort of considered to be equal, right? So there's like three buckets of the same size. And of course, that's not what happens at all over the last four years. Uh, what happens is that the systemic rival part yeah. takes over the conversation, mm -hmm. um, but also increasingly takes over the, the policymaking. And so that brings us to the uh, von der Leyen speech from March 2023 that I uh, briefly mentioned before, where she comes up with this term and is very successful the form of PR, because now everybody uses this term, she comes up with this term of de-risking. Yes. So mm -hmm. there's been the decoupling term flying around. The Americans, you know, sort of, or some Americans have argued that uh, there's a need to decouple from China. Mm. That always struck most people as somewhat unrealistic and probably also not a desirable goal. And so now the Europeans have this middle path in a way, right? Mm. Where it's not like, it's, it's not about cutting ties, but it's about reducing risk right um and, and the beauty of the term of course is that it's, it's wide open for interpretation so it's not necessarily clear what de-risking means in practice mm -hmm. but i think that's sort of the if you if you if you just chart these sort of three points in time right from like the strategic agenda for cooperation to the partner competitor systemic rival framework to sort of the the de-risking imperative it gives you a relatively good sort of line of how the political side of the relationship has uh, has developed. Um, and maybe one word on Switzerland, since we're recording this in okay, Switzerland. Switzerland's, of course, not part of the EU, so this does not directly affect us, but it does indirectly affect us very much. Switzerland's always prided itself um, with having a, a special relationship with China and, and in, certain, in certain ways, and, and for a long time, that was certainly true. Switzerland was one of the first Western countries to recognize the PRC diplomatically. Um, still uh, one of the very few countries to have a free trade agreement with China. So uh, there are things that make our relationship with China special. But of course, the more you know, so the, the more antagonistic policy, um, the more antagonistic approach towards China on the European level, just kind of like shrinks the space for what people in Switzerland call like a pragmatic approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's sort of increasingly felt. And again, you know, that's why the Swiss government in 2021 felt the need to actually have a China strategy. Yeah. And that strategy is trying to sort of find a middle path. Um, it's very, it's very clear and very open and, you know, sort of calls out China on a number of things and made the Chinese very unhappy. Um, but also again, like sort of emphasizes the need for collaboration and, and, and dialogue. So it's also a, it's a strategy that doesn't sort of have a clearly defined path forward, but sort of is something that uh, you know, so that that does strike uh, does try to strike a balance, but that's sort of you know where we are right now. It's mm -hmm. the uh, a relationship that is very complex, that is evolving, mm -hmm. but is evolving with a relatively clear direction, which is that Europe, both as a both in the sense as the EU, sort of as a um, as an organization, as well as Europe in the sense of its individual states that are in in Europe, are becoming more wary mm -hmm. of China and mm -hmm. more hesitant to sort of deepen the relationship mm -hmm. at the very least. While again, at the same time, sort of you know, economic integration is actually there. It doesn't maybe proceed at the rate that, you know, one would have envisioned back in 2013 or 2014, but it's also not being reversed at this point. Can I, uh, that was so much information, Nico. So I'm, I'm so grateful for this. This is such a wonderful deep dive. And I think a lot of things you touched on, uh, you know, they're, 
they warrant another 10 minutes each of conversation as that always is with you. But can I quickly go back to one point that interests me, the, this very open formulation of de-risking, right? Like the, making this a, a very strong statement for the path forward. And I understand, of course, the risks are, you know, that's a complex situation. However, can you maybe give at least a little bit of an idea of what is identified as an actual risk? Like, what, what are we talking about? Sure. So I think generally sort of the, you know, the, the fundamental risk perception, not just in Europe, but also in the US, is that we are too economically dependent of a country with whom we have fundamental systemic differences. Yes. Um, so... I mean, uh, this is obviously oversimplified, but the, the problem is that That's fine. Uh, a, a country that we believe is both autocratic, um, yeah. but also revisionist in the sense that it wants to change the global order that we that we have and that some of us like. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that that country at the same time, you know, produces a lot of the goods that we need. And so that is a, you know, that is a kind of almost a textbook definition of a strategic risk. Um, that needs to be addressed. So the de-risking, I think, in its first sort of, its first interpretation is really about addressing supply chain risks. So yes. about ensuring that Europe as a whole is not quite as dependent in certain areas of China as it is now. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the most obvious way of getting there is is diverse is a diversification strategy. So of that course. could both mean diversifying away from China into other countries. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's already happening, right? This is not this is not new. Uh, companies are very often doing this already. Um, another way of de-risking is, of course, you know, having your own industrial policy. Uh, so the idea being is that, you know, if we're too reliant on uh, certain products um, that come out of China, then maybe one way of reducing this reliance is not to import them from elsewhere, is to actually you know start making them ourselves again. Mm -hmm. um, it depends a bit on like that doesn't obviously make sense for for all products. Um, one big category, which in a sense is especially here, are of course semiconductors. And and again, we could record well, an yeah. entire episode on the semiconductor issue alone. There, the issue is not so much that you know, so if we're directly dependent on semiconductors from China. We are to a certain extent. China does make a lot of semiconductors, but they're not making a lot of uh, high-end uh, state-of-the-art semiconductors. Those are made in Taiwan. Um, and then, of course, you know, you get into the Taiwan issue and there the risk is not that we're, the risk is that we're dependent on a supply from Taiwan, which of course is a geopolitical flashpoint uh, that China has you know, vowed to reintegrate um, into its country with, with, with unforeseen consequences. So I think that is what people mean when they say de-risking. I think what's, what's in de-risking, and one of the reasons why I think it's a smarter term than the coupling, at least, is that the de-risking sort of accepts that China is not going away. Um, and it sounds like a super obvious statement is, of course, it's not going away. It's a big country with 1.4 billion inhabitants. But I do think that very often there is a little bit of this undercurrent in, in, in the Western debate of kind of assuming that, you know, maybe if we're lucky, the problem just kind of like resolves itself. Yeah. Um, which could mean, I don't know, either China turns into a Western style democracy overnight, which mm. would resolve sort of the, the ideological issues or the Chinese economy kind of, you know, like falters and, and sort of crumbles under the weight of 
over leveraging and an an aging population and whatever argument you want to come up with. And that sort of takes care of this as well. And I think the de-risking concept in a way accepts that it's a a risk you can reduce. You just can't make it go away Mm. entirely. Mm. Um, One way or another, the world or the West, uh, I I should say, and, and in Europe specifically here, have to find a way, you know, to to deal with China. China's yeah. always going to be here. China is very likely to be economically and, and geopolitically more powerful in the future than in the past. And I think don't think there's any policy that we could come up with to change that. Nor am I necessarily convinced that that would be a good idea, even if we could. Mm. Um, and so I think de-risking has um, fuzziness aside has has something to it. I think it's a it's not a bad term to sort of capture what this is ideally yeah. about and sort of what um, uh, Europe you know, should aim for in, in that direction. I wonder too, Nico, you know, I mean, in terms of sort of rhetoric and just sort of outward statements about China, of course, we are all very much still living in the shadow of this very, I don't know, in some parts traumatizing political regime of Trump and this very strong statement about a, you know, anti-China rhetoric that he put forward a lot, right? So I wonder if this is also, and I'm really asking you about your your view here, um, is this sort of a reaction to, to kind of soften the very hard walls that were put up against China from the US previously? And what is happening now mm. from the US side towards China? Right, yes. So of course, you know, so we, we've been talking in the context of the Europe-China relationship, we've been talking a lot about Europe and a lot about China. Yeah. But there is a third player in this relationship, even if we're not naming it, and that is the US. Yeah. And what the US does and doesn't do has a huge effect. And, and I think it's it's positively impossible to talk about the Europe-China relationship without sort of having the, the US dimension. Of course. And so one question we recently asked, um, and, and part of the reason we're having this conversation today is really not just where is this Europe-China relationship going, but also, you know, is Europe, should Europe side more with the US on China? And yeah. again, that, you know, that is a question that people in Europe are, are asking or debating and there are different viewpoints and, 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 and that's an interesting debate. So the US side, I think there, there's a few things. So the, the obvious recognition is that US policy towards China has become more antagonistic, it's yeah. become more critical over the years. I think that's been clear. Um, that's actually very bipartisan. So, um, you know, the the U.S. policy towards China from the Biden administration may sound softer. It but is it, not. It's not. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, 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 it's yeah. not at all. In, 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 if anything, if anything, it, 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 it's it's more antagonistic. And, and you know, we've seen all the we've all seen the the crises from the balloon and then sort of the sure. the ways to try to kind of like keep up the diplomacy. But I think it's. Quiet. It's a matter. It's a matter of it's. It, it, it's accepted broadly, both in the U.S. as well as in China, and probably in most other places in the world, that this relationship is not getting better. Mm. You know, in in the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that it's necessarily gonna descend into you know outright conflict. Um, I think there's many states that the relationship can be in that is you know not certainly not like kinetic war but maybe not even sort of like economic warfare um that still means it's not good right so we may just like look at us you know 10 20 years of kind of like 
relationship that's always on the brink of something without ever actually passing that brink. Yeah. But it's clearly not about, you know, we're not about to enter a phase of uh, of like a G2 world where the, the US and China basically decide that they will now agree on how the world should be run. Yeah. Um, so that's not something yeah. that we're looking at. So yeah. yes, so that's one thing. And then I think, yes, the, the domestic sort of, the domestic specificities in the US do matter to the European debate. And I think it's one of the arguments that is usually being put forward by people arguing for European strategic autonomy is that it's hard for Europe or you know, not necessarily wise for Europe to align itself with the US on China because it's also not quite clear what we are aligning ourselves with. Yeah. And that the rhetoric from the US you know, sort of and, and, and the way the US sort of is framing this is becoming increasingly harsh. Yeah. And you know, what that means is unnecessarily harsh, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's a sense in Europe in, 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 in many ways I agree with that assessment is that the U.S. policy towards China has sort of become much more of a domestic issue than a than a than an international issue, and there's a little bit of a game of one-upmanship yeah. where Republicans and Democrats try to sort of prove who's tougher on China, mm -hmm. um, and it's likely that that's only going to get worse as we move into the 2024 election cycle. So there's a lot of wariness, and and that is of course because of the Trump experience. There's a lot of wariness on the European side that sort of basically hitching ourselves to the US might drag us into things that we don't actually want to be yeah, dragged into. Yeah, yeah. I think that's more of a, we should also say, I think at this point, this is more of a theoretical consideration. So I think if we look at this is what the Biden administration is doing towards China, um, there's certainly certain things that you know, some people in Europe may disagree with, but I think there is probably relatively broad consensus. Mm. Um, but I think the European worry is, you know, that you know, the U.S. policy towards China may not be not, not always be what it is now. Mm -hmm. and it may descend sort of into um, into something something that the Europeans wouldn't want to be a part of. So mm -hmm. that's definitely kind of like one one factor of the debate in Europe. But there's another side in Europe which you know argues that countering this kind of systemic strategic risk that we talked about before that you know and, and, and that China may pose only makes sense if Europe and the US collaborate. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that argument has, has a lot to go for itself. So that's, again, why it's why it's such an interesting debate, right? because there's really good arguments on both sides. <laughs> As that is with a good debate. But speaking of both sides, can I pivot this a little bit? Because sure. one thing that really is interesting to me, too, is, you know, we're talking far and wide about how Europe stance towards China is but how much does that even matter to China what does China think about Europe <laughs> I mean I know that this this sounds a little uh, maybe too banal and of, co of course it's a of course Europe is a, is a huge force I don't I don't mean to lessen that in any way but what is if we're talking about our policy towards China what is China's policy towards Europe and maybe the US if you want to broaden that yeah, let's stick to maybe Europe uh, for, for, for the moment. I think that's, <laughs> that's complicated <okay>. enough. So <laughs> I think what's notable is that we, you know, I talked about this sort of shift before on, on the European side and when we went from like the strategic agenda for collaboration all the way to de-risking is that there hasn't been at least, you know, sort of in terms of publicly available documents, that shift has not really happened on the Chinese side. So mm -hmm. there's a few white papers um, that China's put out, you know, on Europe. And the, the, the key aspect of them is sort of how, sort of how, how similar they are over the years. There mm -hmm. are some shifts that happen, but 
broadly, I think what China is trying to do, it's projecting this idea, um, you know, sort of that it's still interested in collaborating on, you know, on a broad range of issues with Europe. Now, of course, you know, that's what the public documents say. That's not necessarily what the policy is. Um, I think we would need to add definitely a few more things to that for a very long time. um, That's maybe shifting a little bit right now, but for a very long time, China has not just in Europe, but in other parts of the world as well, um, had a preference for bilateral relationships instead of, you know, sort of dealing with the group of countries. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it would put more emphasis on the China-Germany relationship versus the China-EU relationship um, or the China-France relationship. And I think that sort of this idea of a bilateral relationship kind of makes sense strategically if you think from the Chinese side, because in a bilateral relationship, they're they're always the bigger one. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the 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 bigger player. So I think that's one thing that is definitely still part, right? That this idea of on the bilateral side, there was for a while. You know, there may have been attempts from the Chinese side to also try to kind of divide Europe a little bit. So there's been um, this initiative called the sixteen plus one, um, with the sixteen referring to a bunch of. Uh, mostly Eastern and Southern European countries, uh, some of which are EU members, others of which are not. Um, and and the, the one was China, right? And so they had this kind of special format where uh, they would be put in dialogue. And there was a lot of worry actually in, in Europe, in, in Brussels, that this would sort of kind of peel away mm. you know, some of these countries that mm. obviously were interested in getting access to uh, to investments and, you know, having Chinese infrastructure in, in their country and whatnot. Um, and I think what's curious and also something that maybe is a little bit missing from the European debate is that how absolutely and totally this hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so the format, um, it was once then a 17 plus one because Greece joined and then the Baltic states uh, started to leave. And I think it's down to 14 plus one and it's for all intents and purposes a, a defunct thing. It still technically exists, but it's not something that you know has high priority on, on either side. Yeah. So. Um, it's an interesting case also in how this idea of China basically wooing other countries with promises of investment and infrastructure, yeah. it's not as easy as we all thought it would be, uh-huh. right? So it's, China is actually struggling to do that, which you know, if you're Europe and, you know, so if you're, um, uh, you're worried about your uh, political cohesion, that's kind of good news, right? Yeah. Um, and the same is true for, uh, in, in, in some regards, with the Belt and Road Initiative, which there was a little bit of a, a similar debate in Europe a few years ago that, uh, you know, sort of the Chinese were sort of going to use the BRI to kind of pull countries like Montenegro in their orbit and you know, sort of with, uh, just by pouring money in and, I don't know, like building crazy highways or something. Mm-hmm. And some of this has happened and, you know, some of it has had a political effect, but... I dare say that given the amount of both of money that has flown in and given the amount of sort of debate that we've had about it, like the political effects are relatively minor. And you see that again by the fact that while the EU or Europe may not completely be aligned on China, to me, it makes a relatively unified impression right now. Mm-hmm. It's not, of course, as, you know, sort of the, the European approach towards China is not as homogenous as the American approach, but it makes sense. It's well, not one country, sure. it's 27 exactly. different countries. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in, in certain ways, that's even a strength. But so, um, sorry, I'm getting derailed here a little bit, but the, the question was about Chinese policy towards Europe. So um, continuity was one thing, 
bilateral focus on bilateral relationships this idea of kind of you know for a certain time wanting to sort of divide now what you hear often by you know kind of chinese sources is the chinese have sort of like picked up this term of strategic autonomy so um, that's a, you know, something the Europeans say. Uh, yeah. the, the, the French, the, the, the French like to to uh, advocate for strategic autonomy, and you know that sounds good. Like there's nothing wrong on the face of it with strategic having strategic autonomy. It's something that everybody would want to have, I assume. Yeah. Um, but of course, when the Chinese argue that Europe should have strategic autonomy, implicitly what they mean is that it should not align itself with the U.S. because strategically that would be bad for China. So I think there's a bit of a there's definitely sort of a recognition on the Chinese side that you know, sort of finding ways to sort of collaborate with Europe also presents a chance of kind of maybe driving a wedge partially between Europe and the US, which mm. which would be in China's interest. Um, and that complicates, again, like the discussion on the European side, because in many ways, again, you know, Europe wants to be strategically autonomous. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Um, and there are absolutely areas with regards to China where the European interests and the American interests are not the same. That's also clear. But then you have to be careful, right? If you sort of, if you go for strategic autonomy, that you're not inadvertently sort of weaken um, the areas where there is alignment between the US and Europe. So it's again, it's a really, really hard question. Hmm. Okay, Nico. So let me, let me maybe get to a different question then. So we've been talking about this sort of triangular dynamic here quite a bit, right? So, but what would be the argument for a more stronger or let's just say a clearer alignment of mm. Europe's um, strategy with that of the US? Mm. What would be good for us there? I mean, the, the, the fundamental question there is that, and I think that's true, is that there's more that unites us than divides us between Europe and the US sure. vis-a-vis China. So we agree, and that's probably going to be true for a long time, and you know, regardless who sits in the White House, is that there's a broad area of policies where the concerns towards China in Europe are going to be very similar to the ones um, in the US, and that's you know that's already you know a good argument certainly to to have some sort of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Another argument that comes up very often, and that you know I, I find to some extent also very convincing, is that. Obviously, one of the biggest risks that uh, we've also briefly touched upon before is the situation in Taiwan, with mm-hmm. China having you know, a very clear policy of reunification um, and there being relatively broad consensus that reunification is unlikely to be able to, it's unlikely um, to be possible without military means. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're looking at a possible uh, military crisis or even war in, in the Taiwan Straits. And there's been this unfortunate statement by the French president Emmanuel Macron while he was on his way back from China and he like said to a reporter on the plane that kind of like Taiwan is not our it's not our conflict and that received and I think correctly a lot of pushback because while obviously Taiwan is not in Europe right it's not our conflict the way that the war in the Ukraine is something that addresses the fallout from any major crisis, even if it's not something that, you know, sort of is military, think about an economic blockade or China cutting deep sea cables to Taiwan, you know, whatever you could imagine in terms of kind of like hybrid conflict, because of Taiwan's outsized importance, because of, you know, sort of its, uh, its place in the semiconductor supply chain, that would have huge ramifications yeah. for Europe. So. Basically taking the easy way out and saying, oh, well, you know, this is not our problem. Like we'll, we'll try to kind of like stay quote unquote neutral. 
that's not what Macron said. I would be putting words in his mouth, but that's sort of how it was kind of understood in some places. Yeah. That's obviously not an option, right? So if the goal is, as I think it should be, to preserve Taiwan both as a democracy as well as, you know, a economically prospering place, mm -hmm. you know, then what you want to project is some form of deterrence. And that's just easier to do if you're aligned. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the key argument. I should note, you know, just for completeness sake, um, although it's going to end in me saying it's complicated again, but I will still say it, <laughs> that there's, of course, also risk in being aligned. And the risk is that you kind of like overshoot the deterrence. And yeah. right, that we've seen, again, like on the Taiwan issue behavior from the US that I think has made many people in, in Europe uncomfortable because it was seen as unnecessarily provocative. Yes, of course. And so, again, the, you could argue that Europe not aligning on that issue could actually sort of help, uh, you know, sort of quieten things down a little bit. Well, as when if the Europe, if you, Europe would sort of sign on to that, that would actually sort of help to escalate things. So, it's, again, not totally clear cut, but I think at the very least, kind of like a sustained dialogue and very, very close uh, coordination on the Taiwan issue between Europe and the US is probably good. So, that would be one argument sort of for the US and Europe becoming more aligned. You and I actually talked about Taiwan and China about a year ago. Remember that? Yeah. It would be, we should go back and revisit that that episode. I think we, at that point, it was, I just looked it up when it was, it was um, on the 19th of August we aired it, so uh, almost a year ago. And I remember talking to you about the complexity of what would it mean if, and so on and so on. And I think, you know, just sort of remembering that episode. And again, I'm going to go back and, and, and listen to that one again. The issue would be, as you say, complex, of course, right? It's not so simple. It's not, it's not just a one-dimensional, we don't like this from a humanitarian standpoint. We don't like the, this kind of display of dominance over a lesser country or a smaller country or a less strong country. It has, it has obviously implications for Europe as well. Um, Nico, but in all the complexity sometimes lies some simple <laughs> you're smiling um yeah i'm not gonna let you go away with just saying it's all very very complex what are some key takeaways and sort of to summarize some of the doubtlessly complex things we talked about sure yeah um so i do think that there's there are kind of two things happening in europe if you look at them on, at first glance they look like they're contradictory, but they're maybe not. So one is that European policy towards China is becoming also more critical. It's becoming more wary, as we've discussed today. And the other thing is that I think there's still, and maybe even increasingly, a reluctance on the European side to you know fully align with the U.S. and fully side um, with the U.S. And you know, again, you know, this may be perceived as contradictory, and, and maybe to a certain extent it is. But I think you can also make the argument that that's actually good because it means that Europe is becoming more aware um, of the need to sort of think about these questions really, really hard. Yeah. And as we've discussed before, I think one key takeaway is that one reason why the Europeans might be reluctant to you know, sort of side with the US on China more strongly is that it's not totally clear what we would be fighting with because US-China policy is very much in flux as well. Um, and the upcoming election cycle and you know, whatever the result of that may be, sort of complicate that further. So I think for now, 
it's strategically not a bad idea for Europe to have close coordination and, and all that, but that's that's a given anyway. But maybe to keep a little bit of distance from the US while trying to avoid that that sort of can be used uh, to drive a wedge between uh, between the, the, the two places. That's very, very hard balance to achieve, but I don't think it's impossible. Um, and I think the second point, part of the reason why it's not impossible is that so I think we tend to frame this as well, we can either you know, side with the US or side with China or kind of I try to find some like neutral neutral ground in the middle. Mm. And that's of course it, it, it unnecessary oversimplification. Um, it's not just those three options, it's an entire spectrum and you can be on any point in the spectrum and, and you can obviously shift um, a little bit back and forth on the spectrum. So I think there's obviously broad agreement, right? That Europe's not Europe is not equidistant strategically between the U.S. and China. It's yeah. much more firmly sort of you know uh, leaning towards the U.S. Yeah. Um, but I think then you know in on this side of the of the spectrum between like being fully aligned with the U.S. and being equidistant, there's a whole range of options. Yeah. Um, and I think there you know details will just matter, and it's not enough to say well you know we need to align with the U.S. or we we shouldn't align with the U.S. We need to actually hash this out for all the like, specific issues that come yeah. up. And the answer may be different from issue to issue. Um, and the reason why I think that is uh, relevant, my third point is that this will actually prompt the debate. And I think for a very long time, and that again, is not just the EU and it's not just European countries that are members of the EU, it does include Switzerland, is that we kind of felt there was no need for this debate. We kind of felt that, you know, this rivalry was not necessarily affecting us that you know our interests were primarily economic um and all that and that's obviously ended and i think the fact that we're having these discussions now the fact that you and i are talking about this but you know the fact that there are all these debates going on on, on so many levels in europe is good and and i yeah. think if if all we achieve is that you know we have this discussion in, in more frequent intervals mm. on very different levels if Everybody now, you know, writes China strategies and updates them every year. That's good, right? We're not going to get this right in the first go. Um, this are, these are things that are changing and that need to be adapted. Mm. Um, so I think that in itself is a very positive development that I think we should, we should welcome. We should welcome the debate um, and we should welcome it sort of moving us forward. But we also have to accept that we're not going to resolve this in the next year or in the next five years. Um, the only thing we can hope for is sort of like getting slightly closer to an ideal state yeah. with every with every step without ever fully getting there. Nico, fantastic. Well, thank you incredibly much for this roundup. I feel super informed now. And I think it is indeed super important to keep the continued debate open. One last thing before you go, though. Can you point me to where people can actually stay informed in the know maybe even catch up a little bit on this subject um i of course know what you're going to answer now but i would like to hear it from you <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate that thank you aurelia yes of course so we did at age study switzerland recently put on what we refer to as an oxford debate it's a very specific debate format that we like 
which did discuss the question of whether Europe should side with the US on China. It was a live event that was recorded. Um, there's a video of it that people can watch that I think is, is, is interesting and insightful and helpful, and we can link to that in the show notes. And in preparation for the debate, um, and we can link to that as well, we also put out a, a primer on the Europe-China relationship yeah. that we wrote together um, with, with another organization. Um, and, and that sort of informed uh, this primer as well as the debate also informed a lot of the things that I said today. So that's kind of my, my primary source of information were, um, were these two things. And I think, you know, if people want to want to go deeper on any of these things, those are good points to start. Of course, there's plenty of other stuff out there, but that's kind of like the, the those are going to be the two things that focus quite specifically on the topics that we talked about today. Awesome. We'll link to those. Monico, again, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for your knowledge, for your words, wisdom, and all of that. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. We thank you, as always, very much for listening. We hope that you have a pleasant weekend ahead now and that you'll be back with us next Friday when we're back with more from Bergos now. Until then, bye-bye.